Well, Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for that rich reminder of your holiness. And Father, anything I have to say right now, anything that you have given me to say on behalf of your church means very little until we understand that in the context of your holiness. And so, Father, right now, just thank you for the opportunity to to come into your presence, to come into your sanctuary, and to just to get in awe, to be in awe of you. Father, you are so good. You are so magnificent. You are so mighty. You are so powerful, and you are holy. I just pray, Father, that above all the many things that we might be taking in this morning, I pray that, Father, may we not lose sight of who you are. May we have a much more fuller understanding of who you are. May we uh, be humbled because of who you are. Father, right now, I pray that we would continue in a spirit of worship and that our worship would transition from singing and declaring what is true and what is right and worshiping you for who you are. Now can we, Father, would you by your spirit give us hearts that are receptive and eyes that are able to see, ears that are able to hear. Because, Father, we know that we also worship through receptive hearts, hearts that are eager to follow through in obedience. So, Father, right now we ask that you would uh, calm our hearts, and I pray that we'd have a, a, a be attentive wherever we're at, and may we receive life-giving truth. We ask these things in your wonderful, holy name, amen. I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles if you're sitting in your living rooms, if you're opening your Bibles. If you're not, that's okay because uh, we're going to have the passage of Scripture for you, but I still think it's good practice to open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, whatever you may be choosing to do. We are going to actually pick up our discussion or our series through the Gospel of Matthew. The past few weeks, we've taken a little break of Matthew, and probably for obvious reasons, uh, but for, for now, this Sunday, we are actually going to continue where we left off a few weeks ago in our gospel study of Matthew. Uh, so in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through, 46 through 50, I'm going to be reading this text to you. You can listen along, you can look along, and then we'll unpack what God has for us. So let's listen in on what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus was speaking to the crowd. His mother, his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, we all live and are influenced by a certain set of rules of life, uh, maybe rules that we inherited and we grew up with, or rules that we adopted later in life, maybe because of necessity or because of conviction. Sometimes these rules that we adopt in life uh, can be labeled as maxims. Uh, a maxim is basically a proverb or a pithy statement that uh, identifies a certain truth 
or identifies some common sense or it identifies um, a specific niche of wisdom. So for example, uh, you may not refer to these statements in this way, but these are called maxims. Uh, We say statements like, actions speak louder than words. Or uh, we, we sometimes throw this out, necessity is the mother of all invention. Or better safe than sorry. Or never too late to learn. And there's a whole list of these little succinct statements that have kind of a maybe profound truth or maybe we ju- use them to justify our own actions in some way. You know, there's also some religious maxims or rules that sometimes evangelical Christians might identify within life. For example, one, one maxim is this. It's really a kind of a maxim that identifies our priorities in life. So when we think about what's most important, or if we were to give a, a hierarchy of importance, we would say, well, this is what I live by. This is my rule to life. And we would say that, First it comes God, then it comes family, and then comes country. And sometimes, depending on maybe where you live in the country, or it happens probably here in Port Angeles too, maybe God and country get a little confused in their order, or maybe they're put on par with one another. Or some people might say that, no, it's God, it's family, it's church, and then everything else follows. Or some people will even be dogmatic in their statement when they say that your first and most important ministry is your family. The question is, are these maxims or rules true? Are these rules for life biblical? Well, Jesus kind of throws a proverbial stick in the spokes of these maxims and reveals a spiritual maxim that that should radically influence all believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus says this in regards to our perspective of family devotion. He says, anyone who does the will of God is a brother and sister and mother. Or to state it in another way, Jesus says, any true follower of Jesus Christ should be regarded as family. And we're not just talking about distant relatives here. We're not talking about distant cousins. He's talking about immediate family, the kind of the innermost part of our family, a mother, a father, siblings. Now, to give you a little uh, kind of catching up from the context in which we're speaking on, again, it's been a few weeks since we've been discussing our Gospel of Matthew, and so let me just kind of give you a little reminder of where we're coming from. Uh, we, we, we see early on in the Gospel, uh, chapter 12 of Matthew, that Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. In fact, he delivers him miraculously, and there's a large crowd watching Jesus do this, and many in the crowd are amazed They're just astonished at what Jesus is able to do, even making conclusions, could this be the Christ? Is this the one we've been anticipating? And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees in the crowd that begin to slander Jesus and begin to fabricate all kinds of false accusations against Jesus. And so Jesus, in his response to these false accusations and the disgruntled nature and spirit of the Pharisees, He confronts these Pharisees by exposing their hypocrisy. And while Jesus is teaching to this large crowd, 
Basically, his, his mother and his brothers kind of arrive on the scene. They come to the, the outskirts of this crowd. And in fact, they can't even, it seems like they can't even get into the crowd. So they tell somebody, hey, tell Jesus that we're here. And as this barrage of people are pressing in, we can, sit, we can kind of almost envision what's going on. There's just so many people that, that, that his own family can't even get an audience In fact, Mark's gospel sheds a little more light onto what's going on. In Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is so busy and there are so many people pressing in on him that Jesus has no time to even eat and his disciples don't even have time to sit down and eat and his own family, his own brothers and mother are saying, he is out of his mind. What is he thinking? He cannot continue like this. And so the presumption is, now that his mother and brothers are on the outskirts of this crowd, the presumption is that since his family is there, then Jesus should stop everything he's doing and prioritize them. I mean, after all, this is a strong group culture. And in a strong group culture or a a strong family culture, it's expected that you put the needs and the reputation of family over the needs and the reputation of your individual desires. In other words, in a strong family culture such as this one, and like many other cultures in the world today, we see that there's very little to no autonomy in these cultures. But Jesus responds in a way that kind of catches everyone off guard, especially his own family. He asks questions in response. He says, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? And then he points to all his disciples and says, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now at first, we might think, as probably many in the crowd probably thought, that Jesus is maybe on the verge of being disrespectful even disrespectful to his own family. And Jesus was maybe on the verge of of being uh, dishonoring to his family, and he wasn't doing as he should. But we see that the way in which Jesus responds, we see that Jesus is actually teaching us something by the way he responds. And the question we might ask is, what in fact is he teaching us? What in fact is he kind of alluding to by the way he responds to the request of his own family to, in, the, in, the, in the kind of in the presence of this large crowd? In fact, we might even ask this question, is Jesus dismissing the importance of his natural family or his biological family? Well, the short answer to that question is No. Jesus is not dismissing the importance of family. I mean, even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, we see that Jesus explicitly talks to John, his disciple, and says, take care of my mother. In fact, the Apostle Paul elsewhere also says, he, he highlights family and the importance of family so much that he says, if you, if you are qualified for church leadership at all, then it must be true of you that you are leading and loving and serving your, fam- your own family well, and therefore that's kind of a litmus test to see if you're even qualified to lead and love and to serve the greater church family, the greater heavenly family. Even when you look at Genesis chapter 1, 
we see that ultimately family is God's idea. Genesis chapter 1, we see that both male and female are created in the image of God, and then God commissions both Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to govern it. So we see that family is very much a, a good thing. It's, a, it's God's thing. It's His design. God has ordained us to have family. But what Jesus is teaching here is that he is bringing greater clarity in how we view our biological family and our heavenly family. He's bringing greater clarity in how we should prioritize both our earthly family as well as our spiritual family. And I believe that the biblical principle that Jesus is driving home that kind of shocked everybody that was listening in his day and maybe even shocks us to this day, the principle Jesus is driving home is this, the way to lead and to serve your natural family, your earthly family, your biological family, in a God-glorifying manner is to help them understand their place and their function within the heavenly family. Specifically, the local church. Let me say that again. The the biblical principle being kind of driven home here is this. The way to lead and to serve your biological family in a God-glorifying manner is to help them understand their place and their function within the heavenly family. Specifically, the local church. I believe there are three questions that need to be asked and therefore kind of answered in regards to Jesus' point. The first question is this, who belongs to this heavenly family? The second question is, which family are we ultimately supposed to be loyal to? And thirdly, what are the implications of a biblical prioritization of our heavenly family? Let's kind of break these questions down one at a time here for a moment. First of all, the first question is this. Who is our heavenly family? Who belongs in this heavenly family? Jesus actually makes it very clear. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush on this one. He says, our heavenly family is anyone who does the will of God. In fact, the gospel writer Luke says it this way. Where he, kind of, he, he identifies what Jesus says in this way. He says, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear and who obey. In other words, what we can conclude is this. The statement that Jesus identifies and as a kind of an important distinction between those who truly belong to God's family and those who do not. It reveals kind of a simplicity of what it means to be Christian. Now, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It's very simple, but profound at the same time. First and foremost, a Christian is a person who first believes in Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says this, But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. But there's a second important uh, 
element to this. It's not just enough to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Even James alludes to this and says even the demons believe that. But what makes a Christian or what makes a person a Christian is not only in their belief in Jesus, but secondly, a Christian is a person who obeys Jesus. You might remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, especially in verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. The point is this, those who truly belong to God, who are are truly a part of God's family, are those who both believe in Jesus, but secondly, also obey Jesus. And for for, for true followers of Christ, for genuine followers of Jesus Christ, this has an important uh, understanding or implication attached to it. It means that you are now not only belong to, but you have two families that you're a part of. You have your natural family. Even if you're not married, you still have a natural family that you belong to, that you're kind of identified with. But as a follower of Jesus, you also have your heavenly family. We have two families as followers of Jesus Christ that we, in a sense, belong to. And it kind of leads us to our next question. Which family takes priority? Which family are we ultimately supposed to be loyal to? What do you think? I believe the answer is neither. The family we're supposed to be ultimately loyal to is neither because ultimately as a follower of Jesus, our highest priority and our ultimate loyalty first and foremost belongs to God. You see, one reality that you and I must come to grips with is this, that when you came to Jesus Christ, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, then all your allegiances and all your priorities were radically influenced. All of them have, have and are continually in the process of being changed. Even Luke 14, Jesus says this almost as a, as a kind of a, an ultimatum that we have to come to grips with. Listen to these very difficult words, but actually um, necessary words for what it means to be his disciple. Jesus says in Luke 14, 20, verse 26, he says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say in, in verse 33 of Luke 14, he says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus is not advocating that we must actually hate our family. He's not, act, he's not advocating that we hate our siblings, even ourselves for that matter. No, if you understand this text in context, you understand that what Jesus is really getting at is this. You can love your family, but God must have preeminence in your life. God must be preeminent. He must have first place in your life. And until God has preeminence in all things, you cannot love either family properly. We see many examples of this. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, 
In Exodus 20, we see the, the law of Moses, or really the, the Ten Commandments given to Moses by God himself, and he comes down from the mountain, and we see if, when you understand the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments all deal with our relationship with God. And the last six commandments deal with our relationship with one another. And there's an importance to the order of these commandments. They're not just ten commandments that were kind of thrown down. No, the first four commandments are the foundation to the other six commandments. In other words, until our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with God is healthy, we cannot expect to have a healthy and functional relationship with one another, both within our biological family as well as our heavenly family. We see also in Matthew chapter 22, for example, Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat, whether you, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point is this, God must have preeminence in your life. And so sometimes the way we look at life, sometimes the way you reevaluate life, sometimes our maxims or rules of life are actually flawed. You see, we're almost, our default nature is to kind of, kind of put an order of priority, and we may do that in our to-do list on a daily basis, and that's okay. But when it comes to our order of priorities in life, especially as we relate to God in his church, uh, that it changes. So for example, sometimes we kind of list our things like God comes first and family comes second and then maybe our church or work comes third and you can have a whole list, you know, of most important to least important priorities. But the better way to think about it, and thankfully for my Bob Stroller here, the wheel comes off very easily, Really, the best way to think about our priorities is not a list, but a rim, a wheel, where God actually takes center place. He's the hub of this wheel, and all the different spokes actually uh, are the different facets of life. One spoke is our family, biological. One spoke is our, our heavenly family, spiritual. One spoke is our career, our job. One spoke is maybe our hobbies. Another spoke is our friends. Another spoke is, our, is, is the fun we like to have. Whatever it may be, we can have a hundred spokes on here. But the point is that God must be preeminent in all those facets of life. Until he is preeminent in all aspects of life, we cannot engage in these different kind of areas of life properly. Having established then what is foundational, it's important that we understand that part of our new life in Christ means that we now belong to a heavenly family. In fact, Revelation gives us a a picture of this heavenly family. John relates this in his vision in Revelation chapter 7 when he looks and sees kind of an end-time picture of what is to come. We see in Revelation 7 that he says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too many to count, 
from every tribe and nation and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with, great, with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. You see, the way you and I are called to experience and to properly prioritize our heavenly family or our spiritual family is by a committed and devoted participation in the local church. So yes, on one hand, God is preeminent of over all things, and then understanding or seeing that preeminence in all things, we now have a better understanding of how our lives and how our immediate family, our biological family, fits into the, not only its place, but also its function within the context of the local church. If you look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, for example, you see the, the church has just begun, and you see the way in which the new believers, the Christians, the followers of Jesus interacted with each other. They had all things in common. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They made sure that no one had any need whatsoever. This is a strong family culture, a strong group culture, and yet they were committed to one another. Joseph Hellerman, who wrote the book, When the Church Was Family, one of my professors at Talbot, he said this, the church or the family of God is not here to serve the interests of our family, its preferences, its desires, and its needs. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. You see, sometimes we approach life in this way, and, I, and I, lo- I hate to say it in this way, please understand me, but I kind of like the quarantine in some ways because it kind of disrupts our normal routine. It disrupts what we kind of, uh, our, our status quo. It, re- it disrupts what is normal and usual. And so oftentimes it can be so easy to, to ask, what is the church going to do for me and my family? In fact, we may even choose a church depending on what it, we think it's going to do for us. And yet, it really, it's an opposite perspective. Jesus kind of turns that whole perspective on its head. And it's not about what the church does for you. It's what are you doing for the church. It's about how you see your family and yourself participating in and serving Christ in his church. Now please understand, Jesus isn't saying that your natural family does not matter. He's not saying that your earthly family shouldn't take priority. He also isn't saying to us that your ministry must always take first place over family opportunities, for example. But what I believe Jesus is teaching us What I believe what Jesus is bringing into the light is that our priorities perhaps may be off. That our loyalties may be uh, misplaced to some degree. And that we need to evaluate carefully whether or not our, our values actually align with God's values, with biblical values. More specifically, I would say, we need to assess whether or not we view and prioritize Christ's church, which is our heavenly family, as we are called. You know, extracurricular activities can be wonderful. 
But if your extracurricular activities have replaced participation with your spiritual family, then I believe what Jesus is saying is your values are not aligned with God's values. You know, one of the things I'm most grateful for about this season of quarantine that we all find ourselves in is that we've all had the opportunity in some ways to slow down. Now, I know some of you, life hasn't changed, and we acknowledge that already. Some of you even have said this you know, directly, so I'm like, nothing's changed in my life. I'm still working. I'm still doing everything as normal, especially if you work in some medical profession or some essential business of some kind. But the fact is, for many other people, there, there's been a lot of stoppage to things, a lot of the normal activities that were usually a part of, especially sports and, and extra, other extracurricular participation, all those things have kind of ceased for the moment. And there's something kind of refreshing about getting off the hamster wheel and stopping because it's in our stopping that we realize how busy we really are. We all, we're all acknowledging that we are busy, but sometimes we don't change unless we have to change. Even as I was thinking through this message and on the importance of family, I couldn't help but think this, parents, and this is directed to you parents with, that are currently in the process of raising children under your roof. If Jesus does not have first place in your home, and if the local church holds a small place in your family priorities, then don't be surprised if your child cares very little about Jesus and the church that he died for when your child leaves home. The third question and the final question I asked or I'm asking is this. What are the implications of biblically prioritizing your heavenly family? What are the implications of biblically prioritizing your, your spiritual family, your local church family? Well, on a positive note, there's just a couple things I'm going to mention, but I'm not going to spend much time on. Positively speaking, we, we grow spiritually. In fact, the greatest way in which you and I grow in Christ-likeness is in the context of Christ's church. In other words, you don't grow spiritually in isolation. I think it's an oxymoron, and it's completely unbiblical to think that I can be a Christian and not be devoted to Christ's church. There's no such thing, you can't see anywhere in Scripture that actually exists. And to think that you can be a Christian and not connected to Christ's church means you are a very malnourished Christian at best. So you grow spiritually in the context of your heavenly family. Secondly, you're able to exercise your spiritual gifts in the context of your heavenly family. In fact, when you look at what Scripture says, especially in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that the gifts are given for the unity of the church, and the gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. So God gives us gifts by His Spirit when we come into faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that indwells us, He empowers certain gifts, maybe gifts that we already had, but He kind of makes them supernatural in a sense. He empowers them for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. They're not for you, they're for others. But on a negative note, there are some negative implications of prioritizing your heavenly family. 
And that is this, you may actually receive opposition from your biological family. Even Jesus himself received opposition from his own family. In fact, if you read in John chapter 7, verse 5, we see that even Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus. And we don't even know the full story. We know that some of the brothers came into faith. Some of the brothers came full circle, and they finally believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But even in his ministry, Jesus is acknowledging so many things. He's declaring so much truth, and his own family stand at a distance going, I don't, I don't buy into it. Even today, there are many people that come to faith in Jesus Christ and that requires them to leave the religion of their family or the religion of their culture. And by doing so, that means that they are disowned by their biological family. Pastor Tom and I, we we got to hear many of these stories, and I I say got to in in a saddening sort of way, because many times the question that came up was, what do we do about these, these, these children that are coming to faith in Christ? Because on one hand, we have a reason to celebrate, wow, they came to faith in Christ. And on the other hand, they come to faith in Christ and they're kicked out of the house. And they're disowned by their own mom and dad. And then the question is, then what do we do with them? And we have, very, we have minimal resources to take care of them. So coming to faith in Christ is a celebration, yes. The angels are rejoicing, but that doesn't mean the difficulty ends. Maybe in a more Western context, it's not uncommon for young adults to endure opposition by their own parents or family members, especially if they're, when they're graduating college and they're graduating college to pursue a life of ministry or to be a cross-cultural missionary. You know, it wasn't uncommon when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ that when, when uh, students graduated, many either went into an internship program with Campus Crusade or, or they went into full-time ministry with Campus Crusade. And I heard many stories about students who graduated and felt compelled by the Lord to be involved. And all of a sudden, they had their parents' full support up until the point that they said, I want to do this full-time. And the parents were like, whoa, wait a second. What are you doing? You just got a degree. What about your safety? What about your financial security? I mean, the irony was oftentimes these parents were proud supporters of missionaries. They're proud supporters of ministries up until the point their own children wanted to pursue that or felt called to pursue that. And then all of a sudden it was a deal breaker. I think the irony of parents and, I, and I, I understand the desire for your children to want to have safety and maybe financial security, but those are not values, those are not desires that we can control. I mean, just look at the state of the world that we're in right now. And this is why when we dedicate your children to the Lord, we, we are really commissioning you as parents, both not only to understand, but, as to, but also to accept an important perspective or an important value concerning your children. We, we ask you this question. Do you dedicate your children to the Lord who gave them to you, surrendering all worldly claims upon their lives in the hope that they will belong wholly to God? 
In other words, your ultimate aim for your children should not be to go to the best college or, or to have a financially lucrative job or, or to, to, to get married or to have a nice home. Again, all those things are great. Those are good desires to have for your children. But all these desires must kind of be subservient to what God wants for your children. In reality, we as parents need to pray in this way. God, what is it that you have for my children? What is your plan for my children or the children that you've entrusted to me? Let me conclude in this way. Let me restate the biblical principle that Jesus is driving home first. The principle is this. The way to lead and to serve your your earthly family in a God-glorifying manner, is to help them understand their place and function within God's family, the heavenly family, what we might call today the local church. An old church father, long since dead, obviously, he says this, Cyprian of Carthage, he says, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God for his father. You know, the Apostle Paul even says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, God's desire for you and for me is that we would grow up into the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he says that, that it, the will of God for you and for me is that we would become holy, that we'd be sanctified. And as we learn from Scripture, as we learn from the life and ministry and the teaching of Jesus, the way in which you and I grow up into spiritual maturity and the way in you I experience holiness or become holy depends on, a, on rightly understanding how our earthly family, our biological family, fits into and serves your local church family. Brothers and sisters, The fact is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been saved into a heavenly family. And that heavenly family that you were saved into for eternity, one day we will all be together one place at one time. Every tribe and tongue and nation represented in heaven, in the presence of God. No more inhibitions, No more sin, no more pain, no more dying, no more sickness, no more crying. Clothed in our new bodies, fully wrapped up in the presence of God. No more marriage, no more siblings in the way we understand it in this life. God is our Father, and we are His children. And that's what Jesus saved us to. That's why Jesus came and that's why he died. And so we have the opportunity right now to celebrate communion and I have, I've encouraged you to do this the last few weeks in your own homes. I'm gonna encourage you to do it in your homes even now, wherever you may be, in the living room. In fact, you can even pause the, your, your Facebook Live right now. You can pause the YouTube channel, whatever it may be. Go get some juice, go get some crackers, whatever it may be. Come back and let's, I'm gonna lead you into communion. You know, when Jesus came and when he died for us, 
He not only saved us from our sins, but we also see that Jesus saved us to eternal life. He saved us what, from what ultimately separated us from God, but he saved us to an authentic, life-giving relationship with God that would never end. And so when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he says, never forget what I've done for you. The Apostle Paul even encourages in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, for I received from the Lord what I've also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So brothers and sisters, I'm going to encourage you right now to take your bread and let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for your body that was given for us. Even as I got to remind a a young individual earlier today of who you are, Jesus, of what you came to do, of how much you love us, I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would, that we would realize that, that your body given for us was freely given out of great love for us. So right now, Father, we celebrate you and we remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Let's take and let's eat the body of Christ. Jesus also took the cup, as, he, as Paul even mentions at the, at the end of supper, he takes a cup and he says, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of, of me. Let us pray. I want to ask God that he would bless this cup and then we'll take the cup together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love for us, even as we are just reminded of over and over again, you love us, you pursued us, you relentlessly did not give up, but you did what was necessary in order to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness, to rescue us from our, in, the, in the enslaving power of sin, and to make us right with you, to give us righteousness that we did not deserve. To, to restore that relationship that has been broken. Father, we're so grateful for your blood given, even as I remember back, way back in Exodus, where you delivered the people of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians, and we had this Passover lamb, and all that was a foreshadowing of what you were about to do and what you have done for us. So, Father, we give you thanks, and we remember your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and we celebrate the fact that there is not a sin in the world that is not covered by your blood. Your blood was sufficient for all the sins of this world, and to that, Father, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, let's take the cup of Christ together.
Lord, I just pray that we would take this moment to reflect and remember your goodness to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. You promised to do that. Forgive us when we lose faith in that. Father, may we not lose sight on the greatest gift that we have received, and that is eternal life. And Father, as that eternal life continues to grow in us, not because it changes what we have already promised to us, but as we become more aware and as it becomes more alive within us, Father, may we portray that, may we communicate that, may we give that to others. May we be that shining light in the midst of a very dark world. May we be that shining light of hope to many people who are hopeless. And Father, use us to be ambassadors for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that concludes our service here this morning. I want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I would encourage you, as I have done the last couple weeks, you don't have to end at this point. I know it's easy to press stop and then to kind of grab another cup of coffee or whatever it may be. Can I encourage you? Can you take this time right now just to take time to pray? Pray for our community. Pray for our world. Pray for our leaders. Pray for many family members who have, not, uh, who have really had a difficult time. I was just reminded by a dear sister in our church earlier in the week, and it just it brought crystal, uh, kind of crystal focus attention to some things that I'm just not aware of. She just said that her brother just her brother-in-law just died, and because of the nature of all the COVID nineteen stuff, he was not able to have family members by his deathbed. He had nurses, but not family, and there are a number of people that are dying with no family because of the the way things are right now. And so I just want to ask you, could you pray for those families? Pray for the many families that will be going through a very difficult time of saying goodbye to a loved one. I know that your prayers matter. I know they mean much. And I know God is honored and glorified. He listens and he responds to your prayer. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of worship.